Howdy, partners, and welcome to the Believe in Victory podcast, a podcast about Grand Blue Fantasy Versus. Wait, 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 I'm supposed to do that line. Wait, why do you have an accent? This podcast ain't big enough for the two of us, Shay. <laughs> it's not supposed, I'm supposed to be the host. You're my favorite deputy. <laughs> uh, Believe in Victory. So I'll, There's I'll... a snake in my boot. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Believe in victory. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Believe in Victory podcast. You could you kept that bit on for a pretty long time. I'm surprised. I actually surprised myself with how long it went without cracking up. Yes, and once again, I'm I'm joined by Vibrating Sheep, aka Dom, who spent like the whole weekend pretty much streaming Grand Blue Fantasy Fest. Oh my God, it was a uh, it was a rough one. It was a rough one. <laughs> Normally, I'm in Grand Blue Fantasy Fest, and so those are normal people hours. Instead of streaming from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m., like oh, <laughs> that seemed yeah, that seemed a lot more taxing for like a lot of reasons. Like for one, um, you had to like really pay attention to what was happening like at all times, and so like yeah, I I commend you for your extreme effort there. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. Um, I enjoyed what I did see of Grand Blue Fantasy Fest. Um, I'm not sure why I kept seeing screenshots of Belial's nipple, but um, that was also a thing that happened. Uh, it's because I it, was it the 3D model or is it the actor who nips? The actor. Yeah, the actor nips slipped. <laughs> but I'm sure that given this is uh, uh, Belial and it's uh, all caught on camera, I think that it was pretty much on purpose. I guess so. I mean. Uh, Let's. What was it? Uh, Ebonic Plague was on the last one. He gave a rave review, so I heard it was great. If I remember right, that actor is also the uh, the Sanji from One Piece of the Tokyo Tower One Piece show. <laughs> really? That's such a. That's interesting. I thought that I haven't actually seen one of those like um, shows before, but I know that they do a lot of uh, theatrical plays and so on and so forth. Um, and the production, and like, there's a whole industry <laughs> that kind of like does this. Right. Yeah. Uh, the equivalent over here would be like playing Doc Brown or Indiana Jones in like the old Back to the Future Indiana Jones rides. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what it would be, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm. But yeah, what, what, what was your take on Uno anyway? So um, I the, the thing about Uno, like, that, so I, I understand exactly why they would have an Eternal and GB versus because they're doing a big Eternals push right now. Yeah, because there's like the Shadowverse set, um, yeah. and there's like the big uncapped stuff coming. Like, they're, the Eternal is going to be a big part of their 2021 in terms of just content release. Yeah, and so I can understand like why they would narrow it down um, to certain ones. Like, and the thing is that in terms of character popularity, it goes like seven, well, six, and then seven, and then like the rest, basically. Yeah. Uh, in terms of just like popu- character popularity and merchandise popularity. After that, then everyone else. Uh, and then so going for Uno in this case is not a ploy to like appease the fans, but to just uh, one, fill an archetype. Uh, because like Zeta isn't really a traditional spear character in terms of like fighting games because she has no range. Yeah. she's She's much more like a a, a Talbane than she is anybody else, like than an Akaris, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, no, I that's that's correct. I think um there was like a funny meme of like uh I think my 
from Maya Natsume from Grandpa Fans uh, from BB from Blade BB like showing her how to poke with a spear. Right. It's like you you don't choke up like this. You ha- you hold it by the end. Like yeah. yeah, I saw that one. Or you throw. You know, I found that funny. Um, yeah, technically she uses it as like a baseball bat almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that makes sense. I was thinking about that too. Like my main take was like, well, it's pretty clear they didn't do this because they knew he was popular. They they know who's popular. Um, and they're they're willing to accept the risk. So um I understood it from that point of view. Uh, what was your actual feeling on it though? Like what do you feel? I think that um in terms of cast, it's good. In terms of um like cast and style, because th- think about what if seven gets um put in also, like the people who are specifically fans of seven are happy, but Remember what happened when Percival was revealed as like the fifth cast member, and they're like, "Oh, look, there's like four sword guys out of five characters." Yeah, I know. I I was the same. I was like, "Well, if they put in <laughs> if they put in Uno, they'll disappoint all of us equally," which is fine because no one wanted him. <laughs> and because you know, let's just say they put in my favorite. They put in Toyin or a song, right? Right. And then I would well, then everybody else who wanted Sarasa. Octo, Siete, etc. Right? We would all be disappointed. But with Uno, we're literally all disappointed, so it's fine. Um, but like, it's it's a it's a tough thing for them. Like, they have a stable of you know these ten characters who are all tied to each other, and they 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 come with each other in story. And there's like a clear tiering of like the top two, then the next two, and then sort of after that, there's this like clump at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been working on making sure that these characters are more popular among the fan base by giving them more screen time, by giving them like more uh, backstory, more pathos, etc. And then, so that's sort of where they are in this one, where they're like, this is, uh, number one is essentially the one who's seen the least screen time period. Like, you just mm-hmm. haven't seen him. Yeah. My theory, okay, this is a boneheaded theory, but listen with me, okay? All right. They're gonna they're gonna have an epic storyline with him, or he's gonna be like one of the main characters, and then he's gonna die in the story, and everyone's gonna love it. Hmm. And then like that'll kind of elevate him as a character to one that we actually really want. But I'm I am kind of concerned that they wouldn't actually kill a character though. Right. We'll find out. Uh, Maybe that'll be that's what I'm saying though. Maybe that'll be the first one, but it's not because they killed some side characters that people really liked. Yeah. And so that's the thing is that like it's another no win in situation because uh, after the the Paradise Lost series, people would just like they 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 ended Triple Zero with nobody dying. Like they put the villains in jail essentially, yeah. and people were so mad in some ways because it's like oh you know, uh, Grand Blue Fantasy is a game for babies. No one no one ever dies except for one character in this whole thing. Um, and then you know when characters actually die, they're like no, not that one. I liked that one. And it's like you can't have it both ways. <laughs> Who was it? Was it um? It was Polaris. It was Polaris. Right? A fe- yeah. It was because she was a female Harvin. But like, there's a bunch of humans who died in that story too. It's just people <laughs> liked the uh, the Harvin because it's it's not very often that they get Harvins. And it's definitely the no, not like that meme. Right. It's like okay, you want character <laughs> death? And like no, no, he didn't. It's like well, you can't have this both ways. It's true. I mean, you're gonna have to live with the result at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. Um, 
but yeah, that's some interesting. Um, do you like my theory was that by adding Uno, they've taken the lid off of like what they would do creatively in terms so. of like inserting cast members. So I was like, well, this means we're finally going to get Carva in the game <laughs> because I was like, yeah, Mary is the one, but I was like, wait a minute. Now they can put Carva in the game. They could. They could. Still, That's what, that was. My... Yeah, there's, there's still two characters to go in this uh, in this season. Mm. Everything's uh, everything's on the table, but I still think that Sandalfon is the uh, the first character of season three. Yeah, I think we're I think we're united in that one. Um, it does seem like well, first and foremost, um, at that timing, like Eustace is going to be like a main character in what it seems like to be the um anniversary storyline do you think another society character is possible i think it's possible i think eustace would be a i mean he he checks off a several um check marks because he yeah. would be the first gun character yeah because we brought him off as the gun character choice most of us did but then now you know um hold on let me see the roadmap again for the timing of this character announcement let's see uh versus.grandbluefantasy.jp Click on the roadmap thing because Uno is he's early he's late uh Jan he's mid January yeah so I actually do think they could announce the twenty Eustis. yeah the twenty twenty one characters listed as spring so I think that would be a great time for them yeah well it's yeah it's just funny because we we kind of wrote them off we're like well there's too many society characters already but he is I mean he che- he's popular he would only be the second male Harvin. Uh, it- it would be funny that both male Harvins are like dark skin, light haired. <laughs> You're right. I mean, Arunes are interesting because they do have like, um, they are different. And that's kind of like what I liked about that. That kind of like makes sense because they made you well, like one of the first Arunes in the story. And then, or in the series, partially, they probably designed her like that. Cause oh yeah, well, we want to make reference to a Bahamut story. But they're like, oh crap! Now we have to like, do we have to make all Arunes have big tails or something? And then they kind of just like went away from that. But I think that ended up opening the door for lots of different cool Arun designs. Yes, I agree. Monkey ears, puppy ears, like fairy is like fennec fox ears, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, today on Believe in Victory, what we want to do is talk a little UL lore. Um, Yuel is a character that is one of the oldest Grand Blue Fantasy characters as well. Um, she has some roots in Rage of Bahamut, but um, her story is pretty different in Grand Blue Fantasy proper. So I wanted to talk through that a little bit today. Um, Dom will pretty much break down um, the origin, what she does in the story. And I think you, like, you get a pretty good vibe of her personality and her abilities uh, in Grand Blue Fantasy versus, but, you know, just talk through some of that a little bit more to give a little nuance to it. Sure. So... Um, it's actually surprising to me that UL was a member of the cast uh, for this DLC because when they started this game, uh, Grand Blue Fantasy Versus specifically, they wanted to make sure that people were introduced to Grand Blue Fantasy as an IP, and so they wanted to use Grand Blue Fantasy original characters. Mm-hmm. So the entire cast up to UL was Grand Blue Fantasy original. Mm. UL herself comes from one of Psy Games' oldest games, Rage of Bahamut. Yeah. And in Rage of Bahamut, she was a kitsune. So that's where her tale comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, they turned it into a plot point in Grand Blue Fantasy that she is a non-standard Arun because if you look at Maedera, 
if you look at Luane, if you look at Fairy, none of them have tails. Mm -hmm. And so UL has this gigantic fluffy tail, which of course the uh, the Luane bros make a touch fluffy tail reference when they uh, are on P2 side talking to her. Um, and so the the large tail for her and for Associate, um, her dance partner uh, in her Super Skybound art, it's proof that they're descended from a royal family. Mm. And their royalty um, is, comes from what they think is a positive relationship with this ancient fox spirit, the Ninetales, which if anybody who's listening to this has read Naruto, know that <laughs> anything named Ninetales is not going to be a positive influence on your life. <laughs> well, I mean, hmm. I mean, by the end of Naruto, it's fine, right? Right. And so um, the two of them, uh, so you all starts and she joins because she's looking to figure out how to restore like a royal bloodline to the Aruns. Mm -hmm. um, and she, the, the reason that her uh, her theme song in Grand Blue Fantasy Versus is called Thousand Year Dance or Dance of a Thousand Years. I can't remember which way around it is. <laughs> um, it's because, you know, the Ninetales essentially ceased to be a thing a thousand years ago. And she thinks that bringing back Ninetales will restore this noble bloodline. And Sociate kind of thinks so too. And then over the course of the story, the two of them find out that that's all propaganda and lies made up by the Ninetales herself. Mm. And so uh, over the course of their story, they find out that the Ninetales is manipulating them to try and be resurrected and then take over the world, of course. And um, they band together uh, with a bunch of other, well, a couple of other members of like the Arun royal families. Um, there are nine of them total. Associate is from the, the first and most noble family. Uh, and Ewell is from the third family. And um, yeah, they they manage to defeat her plans once, and then they believe that they take care of her once and for all in the second event. So these events uh, unfold in Grand Blue Fantasy through an event called Forgiveness and Gratitude, uh, followed by Ko and the Hollow Existence. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a two-part storyline. It took about two years to tell, and it's uh, overall pretty well-received. Yeah. Um, I do remember that a lot of the side characters like Ko, um, Yo, they were both really popular um, throughout the story and UL and Associate get a lot of versions in their game proper. Um, what I wanted to know is, was the Ninetales considered like a like that thing that they're dealing with? Was that considered a primal or is it some other kind of existence? Um, I think she's just considered the Ninetales. I don't know if they ever define her as a primal beast. I was looking through and I, did, I couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's part of why, actually, uh, one of those little bits of Grand Blue lore that people were digging through um, and hoping for from Versus, where a bunch of these characters who don't normally interact get to interact. Yeah. Um, so when Ewell and Cagliostro talk to each other, they make reference to the Ninetales because Cagliostro is one of the members of the cast old enough to actually know what this means. Yeah. She would have been around at that time, potentially. And so there's no like solid definition. It, like she sort of leans into the Japanese definition of like a yokai kind of thing. Because, mm. you know, she is just this monstrous, almost godlike presence, but it never really says that she's officially a primal beast and bound by like primal beast rules. Mm -hmm. 
Not that I've seen at least. Yeah. I could see that being like kind of vaguely in between. Cause I think there are like certain, I guess like fantastical beasts uh, or like otherworldly beings that aren't, they don't strictly get any kind of definition. So I could see it just going either way, I guess. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, interesting. So I did look into the Rage of Bahamut lore a little bit. And I did notice that I think they kind of flipped the lore a little bit. Like in Rage of Bahamut, she was a 1,000-year-old spirit. Mm-hmm. And then in Grand Blue Fantasy, like they kind of, I think that like she has elements of that story now. And so maybe I was thinking maybe they're still trying to like play off of the fact that it's still not quite a um, Rage of Bahamut character yet. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that just, oh, well, maybe like this version of you all is so different now that it doesn't count anymore. Basically, like UL in Grand Blue Fantasy and UL in Rage of Bahamut are almost like, they're, they're almost fully different characters in terms of just even how they look at this point. The only thing they have in common is like a change of clothing and the fact that they have a tail at all. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, do any of the Arun characters make any reference to her like tale in terms of like um I guess I guess they wouldn't necessarily know the difference because Arun's do have like a little bit of difference between um islands and so on and so forth, from what I can tell, right? Yeah, so uh Arun's tend to just have like essentially different subspecies. Like there are there's at least one monkey Arun that we know of. Mm-hmm. Um there are some that are like from the south pacific and they're based a little bit more around like wolves oh yeah that's right that's some of them are foxes some of them are cats there's a couple with like dog e- floppy dog ears and things like that so um they don't necessarily all come from the same kind of place yeah so technically it wouldn't be like astonishing for example or like unique for one to have more fox-like features even if or more um, like if, if they have like the big tail, I guess there's just part of their um, their genetic makeup, I guess. Right. Okay, that's interesting. So I guess let's talk a little bit about Yule herself. I do know that she has some kind of Foxfire ability. In the original game, I think initially she was just like a character who used a lot of fire. But I know that Foxfire is kind of different now because it's it's, I mean, it's considered a water ability in some cases too, right? So... Um, what is Foxfire? Like, what are her abilities in general? So the way that they've implemented Foxfire, um, so there are currently three elements where both uh, UL and Associate are available. Um, they are inseparable, so they are both in the... Uh, whenever one of them goes to an element, you know that the other is going to be following. Mm-hmm. So the original UL is, is Fire Element, and it's pretty simple what she does with Foxfire there. She just She just shoots basic fire, like... She was one of the first characters ever to come out in Grand Blue Fantasy. Mm-hmm. And so her design is extremely basic uh, at, at the beginning. And so, you know, they, um, they didn't really have a strong concept of what to do with her yet. They just were like, she shoots fire. <laughs> she does fire hot. <laughs> fire hot. And she heals, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. A lot of characters had heals for whatever reason, but. Right. And then later on, um, when you got to her water version and you got to her wind version, she started doing a few more tricks with Fox Flame, where Fox Flame is like a debuff that you stick on the enemy and then it makes everything that you do to that enemy hurt more. Mm-hmm. And so they started playing around with it a little bit there. 
Um, in her wind version, it does slightly different things as well. Associate's version of Fox Flame is like similar in that Associate will put Fox Flame on the enemy, and you get like special um, special effects that you have for having that Fox Flame. Um, it's in a D and D perspective. It kind of reminds me of um, Dungeons and Dragons' spell Fairy Fire for those of you who are really old Dungeons and Dragons heads, <laughs> where you know you outline somebody in fire and just you you paint the target and it makes it easier. Yeah, and so. You know, that's sort of the evolution of um, Fox Flame over time. And um, like Societ's version of it also, like it not only does damage, but it also makes them like miss a little bit. So that it, it, it blinds them. Yeah, so it, it, that's sort of the general implementation they've had of it, where all of them, um, all of UL and Societ's versions have some sort of like implementation where their Fox Flame comes into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my take on it is like Foxfire is like fire that they can manipulate to do stuff. So then kind of reference back to the reference of D&D, I guess like it either makes things like easier to do or they're using it in like a creative way that makes it like your enchants, enchants your attacks or something like that. Um, kind of like that, I guess. Right. Um, the in-story justification for why Yule has Foxling in the first place is that she has some of Ninetales' power in her, and so that's some of, like, the hell... They call it Hellfire, actually, when it comes mm. from Ninetales. So it's essentially her manipulating Hellfire without knowing that it's actually Hellfire. Mm. Because um, as... When they started making, like, the dark turn in that storyline, where it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to resurrect Ninetales because she's got the key to us getting our power back into, oh, God, we were lied to. She just wants to be alive again so she can kill us all. <laughs> um, when they made that, what, the point where they made that turn is when you will. She briefly loses her fox fire in one of her storylines, mm. and in her search to get it back, she's tested by the Nine Tails to see if she's worthy of being the vessel for the uh, this Hellfire. And so it sets her on fire, and it's like, if you're not worthy, you're going to die. And so she gets through that trial, and then she's like, look, I can use Fox Flame again. This is going to be fine. And, you know, you sort of have a couple of doubts in your heads. Like, was the Ninetales actually trying to help there? Yeah, that's really interesting. I do think that, like, it's one of the... So, like, a lot of characters um, in Grand Blue Fantasy, like, what they do is kind of not really explained very well. They just are able to do it because they are who they are. I do think it's really interesting that UL's powers and so on and so forth are, like, kind of directly linked to what she is in the story and like what po- what part of the story she's in as well right so i kind of want to take a little bit a uh, big a deeper look into that uh, and so let's take a short break and then we'll talk about that next
And we're back. So I'm back again with Vibrating Sheep. And what I want to talk about right now is we kind of got into a little bit about um, UL's story as a whole, like how, where she came from, what she accomplishes in the story. But I, I kind of want to go a little bit deeper into like both of her main story arcs. Could you explain to like like what, what happens in this first story, basically? So in that first story, uh, so Yule and Associate, uh, over the course of like early Grand Blue Fantasy, they... Uh, Ewell leaves, t skips town, um, and tries to f find like the secrets of Ninetales, these treasures that she's heard about, that will like restore the royal family to its rightful power and like position. Is what she's been told. This is the lie that's been told to her, like passed down from generation to generation. And then Societ eventually finds her and joins up with her and says, "I'm going to help you. This is what I know. By the way, we're royalty. Did you know that?" Ewell's like, "No, I didn't know that." <laughs> okay um and so over the course of the story when they finally get their own story event they get to uh they, they see this vision of what nine tails is really like and what the dancing is for like they thought that the dancing was how they worshipped the nine tails in ancient times mm -hmm. and then they find out that the dances are intended to fight nine tails and seal her away Oh, interesting. And so um, the story that precedes this is that um, all, nine families of Aruns got together in order to try and fight Ninetales. And they explicitly say, we can't kill you, but we can turn you into stone and keep you from undoing this until our descendants can figure out a way to beat you. Mm. And so they turned the Ninetales into stone they separate the pieces and then they uh, like hide the pieces away from each other essentially uh and in the first story you will associate find one of the stones i see. They go to they, they go to where it is and they find that there's another person there uh and this is going to end up being ko who they end up adopting later in the story but he's from like the ninth family which is envious of every other family so they raised him to essentially free the spirit of the nine tails and then die in order to become her body like that was his entire purpose in life he, he escapes from that life and he sort of dedicates himself to trying to prevent it from ever happening mm -hmm. at least that's his story uh, associate buys it and associate essentially gives up her body to become the new body of nine tails and then that's where the, the big climax is in that Yule sort of reaches across the barrier to the, like, Societ and through the power of their love for each other, they both drive Ninetales out of Societ's body uh, with also because that said boy, Ko, realizes just how terrible uh, of a thing that he's done to somebody who just wanted to help him. And so mm -hmm. he helps out too, instead of just being like, haha, somebody else got it uh, took the hit for me i'm out of here yeah um and so they they drive her out like they drive the nine tails out of associate's body in the end and then they essentially become a surrogate family for each other because uh co coming from a family that wanted to resurrect nine tails and having essentially rejected that heritage he's like well i don't have anything that i can do now and so essentially you will associate end up becoming his sort of adopted parents slash older sisters it's Anyway, they become his family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. I think they share like a familial bond. Yeah, like um, 
I could see that. I understand that one. I would say that that's actually really interesting because um, like, as you told me that story, basically you kind of see the pieces making sense as you kind of go through it. So that's really cool. I like that a lot. Um, like, so it's, it seems like the story's over at that point. Um, where does the second story come go? So um, the what happens in the end of the story is that they drive they drive out the nine tails and they think that they've you know banished true spirit forever but uh the second event is called co and the hollow existence and uh the hollow existence in this case it turns out that there was another family plotting with co's family mm-hmm. and they had raised a backup and this backup didn't actually manage to get Ko's happy ending of escaping and escaping and finding a new family that would not try to, you know, sell his body to a thousand year old uh, demoness. And so she essentially becomes a semi willing vessel for uh, the nine tails. And she goes around like essentially stealing tails and just saying, um, you know, your flame is mine. This is all going to, this is all mine. This is going to contribute to uh, me being whole again and me being, you know, getting everything I finally deserve. The stuff that you and your very existence took away from me. Oh, I see. So then that would mean that like, you know, the story is as much about um, the relationship between uh, UL and associate as like, you know, a thousand year old grudge basically, right? Basically, um, you will associate by that time have sort of reached their own resu- uh, resolution. And so uh, it's much more about Ko and sort of dealing with his own past and his background as reflected in this younger girl, Ko, who essentially is like looking for a lot of the same things he did, he was looking for, but mm-hmm. has fallen into the influence of someone that does not have her best interests in mind. Mm. That's really interesting. Um, I guess since we're that, that kind of helps us segue into kind of like the interpersonal relationships, um, we do see UL and associate interact in some of the, uh, in some of the Granblue versus stuff, I guess, like, what is their relationship? Would you say, um, <laughs> this is a very sensitive subject for some people, but, uh, in, in the game, Granblue fantasy, uh, UL does outright say the words, I love you to associate mm-hmm. and, so, you know, uh, it's it's not very, like, subtle what their relationship is, especially since they've essentially, like, adopted at this point. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, they're, they're much more than friends. And so, um, like, both of them have fully proven that they are willing to die for each other in order to make sure that the other person keeps on uh, living or to just try and save the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, they are, you know, even in the end of their super skybound art uh associate says anything for you you and in terms of the story of grand blue fantasy that's borne out like they are willing to go to the ends of the sky for each other they have gone to the ends of the sky for each other like they've risked life and limb to keep each other safe and at this point uh even though they got in a fight when they separated um the first time that you will skip to town in order to you know fight go on her like quest for treasure and um nobility etc cetera, etc cetera, they're inseparable at this point like they are they are not really in any hurry to like leave each other's uh sides at all 
Okay. I mean, I I, I kind of get that vibe even from a, on a cursory level, but um, that is true. I guess if you lay it out that way, it has played out in the story. Um, mm-hmm. Like I'm a big stickler for like dance as like a form of combat or like to practice a form of combat. And I do think the GBVS um, version of her is super interesting. I Is there anything in the GBVS story that kind of expands her lore at all? In the GBVS story, not really like expands as far as I know. It just sort of, like I said, it touches on things that you wouldn't normally see outside of her small little story subcircle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, uh, you GB versus at this point is kind of like a, a, I want to see what would happen if these characters were to interact. And so it's an excuse for the writers and a, an excuse for the fans to see characters who normally have nothing to do with each other uh, in situations where they, you know, they're, they're essentially like distant coworkers um, in sort of the grand scheme of Grand Blue Fantasy, where it's like they know of each other, but in a lot of times when one of them runs off to take care of their own storyline, then it's just too crowded to include anybody else. So they just do it on their own. And then they're sort of assumed to come back. I mean, the Grand Cypher is a really huge boat, clearly, right? It's, <laughs> um, I believe from the original design sketches, it's basically the size of a cruise ship. And cruise ships fit thousands. Yeah, so I guess they could always they could be like a couple floors away and never see each other. Mm-hmm. There's actually a character um, who... He essentially spends like two years hiding from his own children on the Grand Cypher. <laughs> That's like right. Yeah, you can you can recruit all three of them: the the father, the uh, son, and the daughter. The son really wants to find the the father and like get some answers from him. And if you have them on the same ship, they just don't talk to each other for like two years. And then years later, they wrote in, "It's like, all right, Dad, no more hiding. We know you're here. You can't <laughs> hide from us any longer." He's like, "Yeah, I tried." Oh my god. I mean they there's even um like there's even a Romeo and Juliet story where you can recruit both of them and like one of them is supposed to be like fake dead. Yes. Um and according to in story canon, he has faked his death, he is hiding out, and he's essentially writing um he's writing plays under an assumed name, like and try and like essentially acting as an assassin on the side. <laughs> he he's officially dead. But he is in hiding, and you can use him in the same party <laughs> during this portion. And you know, you just have to, you just have to sort of accept this and move on. I think is the line that I keep using. <laughs> well, you know, there uh, everybody is in some kind of weird um, grand blue time and space primordial soup at all points of the story. So um, we just kind of accept that that that's what happens. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, that's funny. Let's talk a little bit about UL in terms of um, characterization. So it's pretty clear to me, UL is a very, um, she's a very energetic character, um, very adventurous. Associate is kind of like her foil, um, who's like, seems more like noble and reserved. Did they, did they only give UL a Kansai Ben or did Associate also have that? Associate has uh, Kyoto Ben. She speaks. Um, she speaks much more softly, much more formally, um, and yeah. So, like the way that culturally in Japanese you sort of think about this is that kansai ben is sort of the accepted dialect of the comedian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Kyoto um, is much more of like the artisan or like the 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 monk or the like 
priest or something like that because Kyoto is a town mostly made of like castles and temples. Yeah. And then uh, Osaka is like the, I guess, like the comedy capital of Japan. It's like the comedy capital. It's like um, they're, you know, we talk about Tokyo as like one of the most busy towns ever. Osaka is one of the loudest. Osaka, there's a lot of stereotypes around being Osaka. And one is that like you're not afraid to speak your mind. Uh, You're boisterous. You're prone to comedy. Like you talk a mile a minute. A lot of these like stereotypes associated with Ewell's accent. I like that actually, because like for those who don't know, Osaka and Kyoto are like really close together um, distance wise. So then oftentimes in stories, um, fantasy stories or even just regular stories, they give characters different accents to kind of um, separate them in terms for characterization wise. But then having Ewell and Associate both have accents that are different but related, but also kind of play into their stereotypical characterizations is super interesting. And so, yeah, that's one of the interesting things, um, because when you go from the Kansai dialect into English, there's always this mental association game that you have to play. It's like, if I'm going to bring this accent over, then how am I going to bring it over? A lot of times when you're talking about like the, the comedy side of being uh, someone who speaks in the Osaka dialect, then you bring it over as like a New York accent or like mm-hmm. a um, a New Jersey accent or something like that. Yeah, like um, like Joy Wheeler, right? Right. Um, and then their choice for UL in this case was to give her a Texan accent. Yeah, I mean, I'm I don't hate it because I understand that she's kind of supposed to be from some different place like you know culturally from all of the other errands and i'm like i i get that but i do think we lost the ability to give societe an accent like completely because there's no like there's no formal version of a texan accent right not really like there are let me think here like there's other kinds of southern drawls but they're a little different like i guess you could try and give associate the the sort of southern bell accent if you wanted to go there oh yeah i guess you could like i she could be like i do believe and so on yeah. and so forth i do declare i guess we could go there yeah it's a little t- difficult though like she has <laughs> so few lines and i think it, yeah it, it's one of those things that's very hard to to do um and connect well i think yeah well not everything will translate. Um, I think we're talking on uh, before the show about Yakuza 7 and how some things you kind of just have to accept that that used to be Japanese. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I've kind of, I've mostly sweetened to the idea of giving an accent to um, an English dub as a whole. I think um, not only does this show that, well, for first and foremost, this is a dub and we understood that something is happening here, but it lets the listener know that there were there was some kind of difference, even if it isn't like a one to one thing, right? And plus, like down the line, if they do need to make reference to an accent, it, they better have one, right? Which is why, like, I'm I was talking about um, earlier. Uh, we were talking about Persona Four Arena, which was uh, which brought in a character who had like she's a robot but for some reason she has an accent just to show that something went wrong (laughs) yeah and so like 
there's a scene where she wakes up and she immediately just breaks into this like Brooklyn accent and the scientists go, is that, an, does she have an accent? Yeah. Wouldn't work if she didn't have one. <laughs> right. That that entire scene just no longer makes sense if she doesn't have some kind of pronounced non like television newscaster style ac- accent. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. I do think that a lot of um, a lot of UL memes are probably and just in general, if she's used in comedy, um, often make reference to this accent as a whole. So I don't know how far along Grand Blues is in terms of um, the current English translation. But I from like a my gut instinct is there's probably a lot of Osakan dialect jokes, aren't there? Um, not as many, actually. They They tend more toward her like more physical comedy. Because mm. part of her like boisterous nature is that she's constantly going around like threatening to like she she is the number one invader of personal space in Grand Blue Fantasy, and you'll see that in a lot of her intros where she's promising people like ticklins and spankings and like all sort of uh, things like that. Like in Japanese, she talks about spankings like Oshiri Pen Pen all the time. Like mm. she's she's very like um, expressive with her hands, even though you know as a game that. It exists only as still uh, pictures in a browser. It's very hard to express that other than by like overacting with your voice. But uh, in Grand Blue Fantasy uh, versus she, uh, you know, um, there's like her intro against uh, Gran, where uh, Lyria and Vern will talk about how like they nearly died when she uh, got her hands on them and tickled them nearly to death. Uh, <laughs> there's like it's time for your spankings and things like that. Uh, all, that's a a big big meme with ul like just even the word spankins just taken out of context and just p- posted below pictures of ul is a pretty common thing in uh, grand blue fantasy uh, fandom mm, i see that makes a lot of sense then my initial thought was like you always need kind of like a a character who is i guess more like physically intimate so that you can make like a more standoffish character work i guess is kind of what i'm thinking in terms of societ. Um because I, I don't, you couldn't, you couldn't really necessarily have them be a pair without one of them kind of, I guess, like reaching across, right, in some way, shape, or form. Right. But I, I, I do think that as a character, I think that is one of her endearing traits. I would say. Right. In, in you know, a, a fairly like reserved culture and f- reserved, just not just culture, but st- a reserved story as well. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that like, um, for one. I remember one of my my Japanese teacher told me that in general, like dances kind of like is fairly rare as a form of expression in Japan. Mm-hmm. And so because there's no space to dance a lot of the time is what she would say. And so a lot of the a lot of like um, cultural expression was done through singing more often than not. Mm. And so she would say that like dance is rare and like it's only it's very select types of people would you know, ex- you know, culturally would express themselves through dance. And so I don't know, like, if she was just kind of just talking out of her head out of that, because I, I always think of Bondori and things like that. But I guess those are all, like, outdoors. Right. But I'm just thinking, like, inside, indoors dance is very, like, the, the traditional kinds of dances, the ones that, like, Societe and you will do, um, they're, they're not really things that you do with each other. They're things that you do sort of as a display and as a mm-hmm. show. Or as like, or in some cases, as an offering. Yeah, but now that I think about it, it makes it makes a lot of sense because if the dance was supposed to be like a martial art that they're learning, mm-hmm. 
um, that would kind of lend itself to being like, oh yeah, no wonder they dance because you know Japanese people they don't dance right in general, but um, for that to be a part of their personality might have been like a hint that there was always some kind of deeper meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can see that. Food for thought, I suppose. Yeah, because um, so that's another thing actually is that uh, it's part of Yule's storyline and her character that she doesn't dance traditionally like she she does really badly with dances that are told to her and taught to her Mm. and she does really well with dances that she just feels and does Mm -hmm. and so that's once again like it's a big part of her character then it's like she is not you know the traditional reserved cultured artistic um woman she she's very like um, physical and uh, personal and emotional. And so, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. So let's just go ahead and um, so let's just go ahead and stop there for today. Um, I think for today's game, let's just, let's, we're going to play categories. Okay. All right. All right. And we're going to name f- food that originates from Texas. <laughs> That originates from Texas? Yeah, and it's the last one standing. So whoever gets one wrong is the loser. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to start. Um, I can't think of any. Are right, you in? I win! This is the greatest. <laughs> I had Tex-Mex and I had Texas Chili on, on there. and I, I was blank right after that. It's like Tex-Mex isn't exactly Texan anyway. But don't worry about it. I win. Yeah, so it's funny because I was like, I wrote down like a lot of different games, but I was like, I can't really think of any, and we're running out of time, so we'll do the game that I can't absolutely, I absolutely can't win. Amazing, thanks, thanks for the, All right. thanks for the softball. <laughs> By the way, who won the contest between me, Josh, and uh, and Isaiah, or is it still waiting to see the rest of the DLC? I think it's you. I think you had the best take as a whole, <laughs> so. Um, I'm the judge too, technically, right? Yeah. So I would say it's probably you. What, what, is it because um, I just said male Harvin? Yeah, okay. there's that, and also you did bring you did have an earlier take where you think you thought it would just be a flying Harvin, and I was like, that that's fine. Um, which is funny too because like Neil was probably as much of a long shot as Uno, mm-hmm. but you know, well there you go. <laughs> right. Um, technically, I was. I was not close on all the takes besides that, <laughs> right. besides Mail Harvin. Um, but that was probably the only close one I had. Just curious. I, I, I'm not holding you to anything. I was just curious about it. No, I, that's, you're right about that. I completely forgot about that. Uh, I should have brought it up because it's funny. <laughs> all right, guys. So that was it for this week's podcast. Um, Vibrant Sheep, what do you have going on this week? Uh, so among other things, um, Grand Blue Fantasy is doing its end of the year promotion which is essentially like three solid weeks of giveaways and news uh that get people ready for 2021 um and so 2021 is going to be the seventh anniversary of grand blue fantasy as a browser game and mobile game um and so they're they're really gearing up to to do it big this year they do they gear up to do it big every year uh and so coming up uh, we have a video coming out uh, translating the trailer for the upcoming anniversary event, which is sort of the end of the Zeta and Vazaraga storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, we have like a lot of news coming out, and yeah, there's uh, we also had a 
an interview with the composer of Grand Blue Fantasy and by extension Grand Blue Fantasy Versus, uh, Tsutomu Narita. And so that is up on our website, grandcipher.com. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, interview. I don't know if you've read it yet, James, but it's a good one. It's a good one. I'm proud of that one. Cool, cool. I think uh, definitely check that out. Yeah, I think um, a lot of what you feel and see in terms of Grand Blue Fantasy is kind of linked towards the music. Um, and I think that we are kind of blessed to be able to have a game that um, part of this, like part of what is developed story-wise is also connected to the music as well, right? So um, definitely do check that out. Yeah. Um, if you have any interest in the game at all, once again, now is the time to start, I would say, uh, based off of that. Um, or maybe if you're from there, you know, good luck on your rolls. <laughs> I haven't you. rolled anything good yet. I've rolled um, the Eleven Sisters, which is not bad, but... They're good, but yeah, I understand. I totally understand where you're coming from. All right. Thanks, James. Thanks again, as always. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and we'll see everyone else. We'll see you guys next time. See you next time. Bye, everyone. Reach for the skies, partner. Ah, <laughs> stop. There's a snake in my boot.